a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. This is a place where wrong thinkers of every stripe and size can come to hang out together, maybe get a little validation, because heaven knows we all need a little bit of that. But most of all, where we can embrace our heritage as free individuals and speak the truth, or at least seek the truth and discuss things freely and not have to worry about uh, running through this filter or that filter of approved thought. We are not limited to the three-by-five index card of approved opinion, as Tom Woods would say. This is a place about... Uh, examining information, you decide for yourself, does it make sense? Is this something I incorporate into my worldview or not? I'm not here to tell you what to think. I have great sponsors who make this program possible. I hope if you have the opportunity to do business with them, that you'll do so. They include MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, also the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah, HSLAmmo.com, and Sewing and Quilting Center. Dot com. So I wanted to start today with, uh, with a question for you. And if you're listening to this program, I feel pretty safe in asking you this question. And that is, do you recall when your eyes first opened? Let me put this another way. Do you remember your own awakening? Because I think most every one of us has had that, that period of time. Look, for a while we were all blissful and we were ignorant. I think there really is ignorance and bliss going together. And we really didn't know a lot about what was going on. And part of this is just natural, right? It's just naivete where, you know, I think, well, you know, things are working pretty much the way they're supposed to. And life is fairly comfortable and not so complicated. But there comes a point <clears throat> where you suddenly make the connection that, whoa, this is not what I've been told or the, the things I've been told versus what I'm observing with my own eyes or my own senses isn't matching up. And for a lot of us, that's where the political awakening begins. And that's where we <clears throat> start to recognize that uh, there's, there's a lot of half-truths and untruths and spin and otherwise manipulation of opinions and ideas that affect everybody. So the not-so-nice way of saying this is, we've all been brainwashed. But I think that's true. And, and I, I include myself in this. All of us have been brainwashed. All of us, at some point, have the opportunity to open our eyes and realize, I'm waiting around here in a swamp of misinformation. And then comes the decision, do I want to find my way out? How am I going to do it? Thankfully, I discovered there were people who were actually ahead of me in that journey, who had started those, t those steps long before I had and thoughtfully left trail markers along the way as to how to get out of that swamp of misinformation. And I'm very grateful for the path that they helped to blaze. By the way, that doesn't mean we all see things exactly the same. It just means that uh, we're all kind of working our way out to, to get to where we can access the truth. So be patient with yourself. Be patient with the people who are behind you. 
you know, who are still uh, working on that journey. And that's what this program's about, is helping uh, people who are trying to find their way out of the swamp of misinformation move a little bit further in their journey and hopefully bring some of the people who are following them along as well. Got a great story here from uh, James Bovard and also a practical lesson about money as he talks about his two-bit political awakening. Check this out. He says, Samuel Johnson may have been wrong when he declared, there are few ways in which a man can be more innocently employed than in getting money. But for young kids, collecting coins is a less pernicious pastime than becoming a pyromaniac or a TikTok star. Now, Bovard says, my own experience collecting, buying, and selling coins vaccinated me against trusting politicians long before I grew my first scruffy beard. He says, handling old coins was like shaking hands with the pioneers who built this country. I wondered if the dented 1853 quarter I purchased was ever involved in Huckleberry Finn-type adventures when two bits bought a zesty time. He says, my grandfather gave me a battered copper two-cent piece from 1864, the same year that Union General Phil Sheridan burned down the Shenandoah Valley where, where I was raised. And he says, some of the coins I collected might now be banned as hate symbols, such as buffalo nickels with an Indian portrait engraved on the front. But James Bovard says, I was enthralled by early American coin designs, especially those featuring idealized female images emblazoned with the word liberty. I was unaware that George Washington refused to allow his own image on the nation's coins because it would appear too monarchical. Until 1909, there was an unwritten law that no portrait appear on any American coin in circulation. That changed with the 100th anniversary of the birth of Abraham Lincoln, whom the Republican Party found profitable to canonize on pennies. By the mid-20th century, American coinage had degenerated into pans to dead politicians. Portraits of Franklin Roosevelt, John F. Kennedy, and Dwight Eisenhower were slapped onto coins almost as soon as their pulses stopped. This reflected a sea change in values, as Americans were encouraged to expect more from their leaders than from their own freedom. Now, he says, when I first started collecting, I assumed that a coin's value was largely determined by its age. That delusion was blown to smithereens at the first coin show I attended. Prices varied based on how many coins were minted each year, the popularity of different designs, and the rising number of baby boomers hustling to fill each slot in their blue Whitman coin folders. Coins were akin to used cars. Those with too many miles or too much visible wear and tear traded at a sharp discount. A pristine 1950 nickel minted in Denver was worth more than a worn 1841 half-dime minted in Philadelphia. Similarly, a 1931 Lincoln penny minted in San Francisco was worth more than an 1898 Indian head penny or a 1857 large cent. The valuations were simply supply and demand, not a collective sign of depra- not a sign of collective depravity. Now he says the history of America's coins also vivified the nation's shifting political values. In the era of this nation's birth, currency was often recognized as a character issue specifically the contemptible character of politicians. Shortly before the 1787 Constitutional Convention, George Washington warned that unsecured paper money would ruin commerce, oppress the honest, and open the door to every species of fraud and injustice. 
the Coinage Act of 1792, established gold and silver as the foundation for the nation's currency and authorized a death penalty for anyone who debased the nation's gold or silver coins. But Bovard says as time passed, Americans forgot the peril of letting politicians ravage their currency. In 1933, the United States had the largest gold reserves of any nation in the world. But fear of devaluation spurred a panic, which President Franklin Roosevelt invoked to justify confiscating Americans' privately owned gold. Roosevelt denounced anyone who refused to turn in their gold as a hoarder who faced 10 years in prison and a $250,000 fine. Roosevelt's penalty was not as harsh as the Soviet Union's death penalty for anyone caught hoarding wheat from a collective farm. Roosevelt said he needed freedom of action, which he used to slash the value of the dollar from one-twentieth of an ounce of gold to one-thirty-fifth of an ounce of gold. Now, Bovard says, I began collecting coins in 1965, the year President Lyndon Johnson began eliminating the silver in new dimes and quarters. At that point, the value of the dollar was falling due to federal deficit spending. The government printed new money to pay its debts, resulting in inflation. Rather than curtailing spending, Johnson debased the currency. He swore there would be no profit in hoarding earlier coins for the value of their silver content. Silver coins subsequently increased in value 15-fold. Johnson portrayed his debasement as progressivism at its best. We are going to keep our eyes on the stars and our feet on the ground. See, he preferred people to look skyward rather than focus on the skullduggery in Washington. Bovard says, coin dealing helped me recognize early in life that a government promise is not worth a plugged nickel. From 1878 onwards, the U.S. Mint printed silver certificates redeemable for silver coins from the U.S. government. And the 1935 silver certificate I purchased included this declaration. This certifies that there is on deposit in the Treasury of the United States of America one dollar in silver payable to the bearer on demand. In 1964, the Treasury Department repudiated that pledge, announcing that certificates were henceforth redeemable only for silver bullion, not coins. In 1967, Congress passed the act to authorize adjustments in the amount of outstanding silver certificates, and then Congress adjusted silver certificates by nullifying all further redemptions. Well, they wouldn't be politicians if they didn't go back on their promises, right? We'll come back to James Bovard's article in just a few moments. Please stay with us. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. So in the context of your first awakening, I'm sharing with you this article from James Bovard. By the way, if you really want a great take on what's going on, particularly in Washington, D.C., but just generally, uh, this, this guy is a wealth of information. If you follow him on social media, follow him on Twitter, um, look for his articles. He always has a take worth considering. This is not the same thing as saying you must think exactly as he does. I'm just saying he has some really useful insights. And so I'm recommending him as uh, one of my favorite resources for wrong thinkers. His article, My Two-Bit Political Awakening, talks about how collecting coins helped him to recognize a few things, not only about money, 
but also about government. For instance, he says, Shortly after my 15th birthday, the U.S. government drove the final wooden stake into the nation's currency. In August 1971, President Richard Nixon announced that the U.S. government would cease honoring its pledge to pay gold to redeem the dollars held by foreign central banks. Nixon declared he was taking action necessary to defend the dollar against the speculators. But there was no way to defend the dollar against politicians. Nixon touted his default as therapy for his tormented fellow citizens, promising it would help snap us out of the self-doubt, the self-disparagement that saps our energy and erodes our confidence in ourselves. Nixon wrapped his decree with lofty political rhetoric, appealing to the nation's greatest ideals and promising a new prosperity that befits a great people. And for Nixon, mass gullibility was the clearest proof of a great people. Nixon's gold default was a milestone in America's rising economic and political illiteracy. And the dollar thus became a fiat currency, something which possessed value solely because politicians said so. Nixon spurred the Federal Reserve to create an artificial boom to boost his re-election campaign, and to suppress damage from a flood of new money, he imposed wage and price controls, making it a crime to raise prices without government permission. Now, Bovard says, at the time, I was toiling in a peach port, peach orchard 10 hours a day, reaping $1.40 an hour and all the peach fuzz I could take home on my arms and neck. Nixon's wage controls doomed any chance of getting that raised to $1.45 an hour. But no loss, he says, I was leaving that job soon to go back to high school. Reading Coin News and other numismatic publications... He says, I soaked up the rage at how the U.S. government was intentionally torpedoing the value of the dollar. Now, James Bovard says, look, I hadn't, I hadn't yet read economists like Friedrich Hayek or Milton Friedman or Adam Smith, but my gut sense told me something was profoundly amiss. I shifted from collecting to investing, pouring most of the money from the jobs I did during high school into rare coins. And because rare coins were appreciating almost across the board, It was difficult not to be lucky in one's choices. He says, after graduating high school in 1974, I began working a construction job. When I got laid off, I saw it as a sign from God, or at least from the market, to buy gold. Investment newsletters and political debacles convinced me the dollar was heading for a crash. I liquidated most of my coin collection and put all my available cash into gold. I also took out a consumer finance loan at 18% to purchase even more. That interest rate was the gauge of my blind confidence. Nixon's resignation in August 1974 did wonders to redeem my gamble. Now, he says, I didn't get rich, but I made enough to help pay for sporadically attending Virginia Tech with some money left over to cover living expenses during my first literary strikeouts. Though Nixon assured the nation in 1971 that axing the gold standard would stabilize the dollar, inflation quadrupled between 1972 and 1974. If the government would intentionally destroy the value of the currency, I wondered what else it was undermining. He says, my next foray into the gold market came after I moved to Boston to try my luck as a writer. Among the zany ladies I dated, there was a woman of mixed Catholic and Jewish parentage who felt guilty about everything except drug dealing. After the relationship with Melanie mellowed into a friendship, she confided that she was afflicted by surplus cash. 
I invested her marijuana proceeds in Krugerrands, South African gold coins, and we split the profits after the price of gold soared in the late 1970s. If I had provided the same investment assistance after Reagan launched the drug war, the feds would have accused me of money laundering and confiscated everything I owned, even my old reliable Smith Corona typewriter. But he says I eventually blundered into journalism and descended to the Washington area. Two weeks after I moved into a shabby group house in the District of Columbia in 1983, I pawned the last gem of my coin collection, the 1885 $5 gold piece, that my Irish-American grandmother had given me 15 years earlier. He says she was a sweet lady who would have appreciated that her gift helped cover the rent for a few more weeks until I finally, consistently, hit solid pay dirt later that year. Thanks, Reader's Digest. So, Jim Bovard says, look, coin collecting can be an economic lesson. He says, my coin dealing experiences helped inoculate me against Beltway-style agoraphobia, a pathological dread of any unregulated market. I had a visceral hostility to political price fixing long before I understood economic theory. I knew that the test of a fair price is the voluntary consent of each party to the bargain the free will of which constitutes fair exchanges, as Senator John Taylor wrote in 1822. Presidents and Congress fixed prices according to political poll, not according to some vaporous, ever-changing vision of social justice. Nixon boosted the price of milk after the dairy lobby pledged $2 million in illegal contributions to his 1972 re-election campaign. Politicians perennially drove U.S. sugar prices to triple the world sugar price in response to kickbacks from sugar growers. It was nuts to permit politicians to control prices when there was no way to control politicians. And he says recognizing that economic value was subjective was a Rosetta Stone for my attacks on federal trade and agriculture policies in the following years. So for almost a century, American coinage and currency policies have veered between government as a damn rascal and government as a village idiot. The dollar has lost 85% of its purchasing power since Nixon closed the gold window. And Bovard says, I remain mystified how anyone continues trusting politicians after the government formally repudiates its promises. But he says, I still appreciate old coins with beautiful designs that incarnated the American creed that no one has a right to be enshrined above anyone else. I don't know if this is going to persuade people to get into coin collecting, but it's not a bad habit or not a bad hobby for that matter. But at the very least, maybe it should spark a little curiosity and perhaps even a few questions in your mind. What has happened to our currency? Why is it that every dollar is buying less and less We'll actually talk about this in the next hour of the show. We'll talk about uh, what inflation is. You see the rising prices. I see them too. But not that many people can explain what inflation is, what causes it. I love the definition that uh, Brian McGlinchey gives it, and that is it's a stealth tax with no maximum rate. Like I say, we'll come back to that shortly. I do want to mention that among our sponsors is SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com. They are in St. George, Utah. And by the way, this month... They have their best prices of the year on handy quilter machines and accessories. In fact, they have a great big handy quilter event going on throughout the month. 
The machines are on season-end pricing, and they have some of the hard-to-find machines available for in-store purchases. And this includes machines by Brother, Baby Lock, and Genome. Now, they can service the machines that you buy. They can train you how to use them, even if it's been a few years since you bought it. They still can show, and they'll, they'll train you free of charge. This is, this is remarkable stuff, and it's a remarkable hobby. So don't, don't turn your nose up and say, well, that's no, not for me. If you want more information, please click on the link that I provide in my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Again, it's sewingandquiltingcenter.com, located in St. George, Utah. If nothing else, give them a shout and tell them, hey, thank you for being a sponsor of this program. We'll be back right after this. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. If you haven't subscribed to my show notes, look, this is not some great literary work, but every day I sit down and uh, I collect a handful, probably eight or nine different articles that uh, that have relevance to what's going on around us. And I, I try to select things that will be informative, that uh, they may be provocative, but the goal here is not to bring more anger to an already volatile situation. I think there's plenty of that to go around. So I don't want to create more anger. I really don't want to try to gin up more fear. But I do want people to consider that you are absolutely qualified to take ownership of your worldview and to give them the best information that I can find. Credible, nonpartisan, principle-based information that actually sheds light on what's going on. Got just such an example here from Brian Kaplan. I picked this one up off everythingvoluntary.com. Escalation and obedience. Escalation? Really? Yeah, well, let me give you an example. I think this uh, this ought to stick in a few people's minds. Do you remember when the vaccines first came out? Hey, you'll get a free Krispy Kreme donut by getting your vaccine. Hey, we'll pay you 50 bucks. And then we watched that go up and up. You know, I mean, my kid was offered $500 for taking the vaccination by, by his part-time employer. 500 bucks for a 16-year-old? I mean, that is like. That's a lot of cheese, my friend. And then very quickly, the mask came off and it became, hey, free donuts and dollars for getting the jab suddenly turned into take the jab or lose your job. We will take away everything that val- that is of value to you. And this is much worse in other countries right now. I mean, um, the president of France is saying we, we should make the unvaccinated lives miserable. Why would they do this? Why escalate the situation? It's because escalation is the standard mechanism of government coercion. Now, Brian Kaplan says airports and airlines governed by federal law never relaxed their mask mandate, even for the fully vaccinated. Yet, if you actually fly nowadays, look around and you'll notice plenty of scoff laws on the ground and in the air, which raises a big question. What exactly is the punishment for failing to wear a mask? Until you board the plane, the punishment is simply an authority orders you, put on your mask. Once they're out of sight, you can safely remove your mask until another authority orders you to put on your mask. 
but as long as you wear your mask in the security line, you probably won't even experience this minor punishment. Now, he says, from what I've seen, airport enforcement is now near zero. Airport police walk past scofflaws in silence. Some of the police are wearing their masks below the nose themselves. Once you're on the plane, however, the strategic situation changes. Some flight attendants just look the other way. Others, however, are actively hunting for scofflaws. So what kind of punishments do these enforcers mete out? Well, Brian Kaplan says, for the first offense, the sky is the same as the ground. They order you to wear your mask. But since you're flying together or you're stuck together in a flying tube, you can't simply obey, wait for the enforcer to disappear and then remove your mask again. If the attendant cared enough to enforce the rule once, they care enough to keep enforcing it. And each time they ask, they escalate. The first pseudo-polite request becomes a stern order. Then they start threatening to report you to the authorities. And he says, I've seen the situation reach this level more than once. All Are these all empty threats? Probably, but only probably. If you're ordered to put your mask on six times on a single flight, perhaps there will be a police officer waiting for you when you exit the plane. How far can you push your luck? Brian Kaplan says, I'm not the right person to ask. What I am confident of, however, is that if you bluntly defy the flight attendant, there's at least a 20% chance that the police officer will be waiting for you when you land. And if you combine your defiance with profanity, then he says, I'm confident that the odds will be that the police will be waiting for you rises to at least 35%. Escalation. If you really pay attention, he says, that is the standard mechanism of government coercion. You can break most of the laws most of the time, but once you're on the government's radar, they keep ramping up the punishment until you back down. Speeding goes unpunished 99.9% of the time. Once you get a ticket, however, you better pay it. If you don't, the amount you owe keeps rising, and eventually you'll probably lose your driver's license. If you drive without a license, they'll arrest you. If you keep driving without a license, they'll jail you. And if you vigorously resist that, they'll kill you. The same applies, as libertarians have been saying for ages, to taxation. No agent of the government has ever held a gun to my head and said, pay your taxes or I'll kill you. But the government will predictably escalate to gunplay if you are loudly defiant. Indeed, you could say that predictable escalation is the essence of government. Almost everyone else in society peacefully backs down if you refuse to obey them. In the classic Milgram obedience to authority experiment, self-styled authorities kept subjects in line with solemn words like the experiment requires that you continue. It is absolutely essential that you continue. You have no other choice. You must go on. Nevertheless, subjects were perfectly free to flatly say no and walk away. And about a third of Milgram's subjects ultimately did. By the way, if you're wondering about the Milgram experiment, he does have a link in that article, and I provide that link in the show notes as well. But see, government doesn't work that way. Government will not accept no as your final answer. You can hide, you can weasel, you can get a lawyer. Still, if you stubbornly and openly refuse to obey the government, it will probably kill you. So act accordingly. I know that's, that's kind of a harsh reality, right? Nobody really wants to consider that, but 
This is one of the reasons why I'm very adamant about any time you hear someone advocating, you know, or you hear the words, oh, there ought to be a law, you know, about this or about that. Every time you get government involved and you create some official policy, particularly if there's some piece of legislation attached to it, there's always going to be an enforcement mechanism. And those who say when you say there ought to be a law, you're inviting a man with a gun to come sit down at the table with you. It's true. As my friend Ken Nelson used to say, it's a good rule of thumb to ask yourself, you know, if the law is the law really necessary? Well, look at the situation in hand. You know, if uh, my, I don't like that my neighbor's grass is too tall. You know, there ought to be a law about people whose yards don't look as nice as mine. And Ken would say, you know, it's the rule of thumb is ask yourself, would I be willing to kill another person in order to stop them from letting their grass grow too long? To stop them from stealing? To stop them from throwing a Molotov cocktail through my window? See, the answer may be, yes, I would be willing to kill a person in order to stop that. Because I'm trying to protect innocent life. But there's a lot of petty stuff out there. That it makes no sense. Why would you? Why would you want to use force? And and government force, as Brian Kaplan explained here, will escalate to the point where if you refuse to submit, government will have no choice but to kill you. Why? Because we said so. That's how it's supposed to work. So I'm not trying to gin up hatred against government. Government is what it is. But what I am trying to gin up is some serious distrust about using it as the tool to solve as many problems as possible. Because the only thing that government can bring to the table is force and coercion and escalation. So the more problems we can solve without allowing them to become a government problem, the less politicized our society is going to be, the less violence is going to be visited upon people who, for whatever reason, find themselves crosswise with the law. You may think that that is only going to happen to criminals and people who really deserve, you know, to be coerced and, and manhandled into doing the right thing, but that's not true. Especially when uh, the enforcers sometimes find themselves being trained into a mindset of, gotcha. And sadly, there are more than a few police departments out there that have that mentality. You know, it's not enough that we're just trying to serve our community and keep it safe and, you know, see to it that uh, crimes are, are addressed and people brought to justice. It's like, no, we are here to micromanage and we are here to find a reason to show you who is really in charge. And that's a pretty bad mindset. I mean, I've, I have friends who have left law enforcement because Their agencies were telling them, go find a reason to write the tickets. That takes guts. It's a good career. You know, you can retire uh, pretty well after 20 years if, if you do your part. But for some people, their conscience says, I can't be a part of that. And please keep in mind, not every department is that way. Some have a much more reasoned approach, but... Man, heaven help you if you find yourself in an area where, you know, that uh, community policing becomes, you know, let's find reasons to escalate government involvement in people's lives and make sure that they're brought to heal. Thus endeth our sermon on escalation and obedience. You can find a link to Brian Kaplan's article in the show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. Stick around. We'll be back right after this. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. Our program is brought to you by great sponsors like lifesavingfood.com. Now, I mentioned uh, the other day that uh, I just got a letter from, or I, I was shared. Let me try that again. Kendall Whiting shared a letter with me that he got from his distributors at lifesavingfood.com. Food prices are going up. Now, you see this in the grocery store. It's true for food storage as well. This is not to induce panic or to otherwise get you running around with your hands in the air and screaming that the sky is falling. But it is uh, an unpleasant reality that needs to be faced. Things are not getting cheaper. We'll talk more about the reason for that coming up in the next hour. If you are looking to add to your food storage program, if you're looking to really make a substantive start for a food storage program, you're not going to find a better time than right now. And, of course, there's some nice incentive for my listeners to do business with LifesavingFood.com, a 15% discount, free delivery, and no sales tax. So jump on their website. I've got a link in the show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. See if there's something you need. If you find something you need, please purchase it from lifesavingfood.com. Save yourself a bit of money and uh, take advantage of prices while they're still at uh, their their lowest level. You know, it seems like these days everything that uh, the left doesn't like gets labeled as violence. I've got a fascinating report here from Revolver News on how the left calls everything violent because it works. The article says, better pop that dictionary open again. Liberals are redefining yet another word. Congresswoman Ayanna Presley of Massachusetts recently staked out the position that student debt is a form of violence. Here's what she said. Let's make it plain. Student debt is policy violence. We'll, be, we'll keep fighting to relieve families across the country to make sure our policies and budgets reflect their lived experiences and that we build this grassroots movement's movement to cancel student debt together. Now, unless you're a newly arrived illegal immigrant with zero English, and there are a lot of them this year, you've already seen this rhetorical stunt. Like the monetary supply, the physical universe, and Stacey Abrams, what counts as violence to the American left is forever expanding. And it will continue to expand because however ridiculous it may seem from the outside, constant invocations of violence are useful to the regime and its apparatchiks in the journalist and academic class. See, according to Presley's squadmate Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, evicting people who don't pay rent is violence, but living somewhere while refusing to pay isn't, apparently. Per Secretary General of the uh, United Nations, saying mean things on the Internet is violence. This is the tweet from Antonio Guterres. Virtual violence is violence. No, let me. Yeah, virtual violence is violence. Online abuse is abuse. Women and girls have the right to feel safe in all places. Now, the article says a recent anthropology paper makes the unsurprising claim that deporting illegal immigrants is state violence. But there's no need to go that far when a Texas judge merely blocked additional DACA approvals that was, of course, violence as well. Saying there are two sexes, or that men who take hormones and put on a dress don't suddenly swap which one they are, is exceptionally violent. 
And back in 2017, psychology professor Lisa Feldman Barrett said that it was violence to let Milo Yiannopoulos, remember him, give a speech on campus. She said it's reasonable, scientifically speaking, not to allow a provocateur and hate monger like Milo Yiannopoulos to speak at your school. He is part of something noxious, a campaign of abuse. There's nothing to be gained from debating him, for debate is not what he is offering. I mean, but but you and I are the ones who are closed-minded because we won't get in lockstep. The article says, but white people really can't win. When they speak, it's often violence. But if they try and shut up, that's violence too. Look, here's a picture of people holding a banner. White silence is violence. Black lives matter. Didn't I see uh, the former mayor of St. George, Utah, and maybe maybe their police chief uh, holding signs? <laughs> silence is violence. It can affect anybody, this, this, uh, this mindset. And about the only thing that progressives don't consider violence is, well, burning, maiming, shooting, and killing people. Just days after mobs torched downtown Minneapolis, 1619 Project prophetess Nicole Hannah-Jones said, there's nothing violent about such mayhem. She said, violence is when an agent of the state kneels on a man's neck until all of the life is leached out of his body. Destroying property which can be replaced is not violence. To use the same language to describe those two things is not nor is not moral. Well, two months later, after a summer of arson, murder, and mayhem, Presley was still going on TV to say that uh, America needed unrest in the streets for as long as there's unrest in our lives. And a week later, after mostly peaceful protesters inflicted a 50 million mostly peaceful dollars in damage on Kenosha, Presley described Kyle Rittenhouse as a white supremacist domestic terrorist and his serial child rapist attacker as a peaceful person who had assembled to affirm the value of black lives. Yeah, this is her actual tweet right here. A 17-year-old white supremacist domestic terrorist drove across state lines armed with an AR-15. He shot and killed two people who had assembled to affirm the value, dignity, and worth of black lives. Fix your damn headlines. Yeah, to, uh, to quote Luke Skywalker, every single thing you said is wrong. Amazing. See, in a moral universe of liberals and the regime, everything is violent except violence. And on the right, and even in many corners of the left, the left's ever-expanding definition of violence is often treated as a reason for contempt and ridicule. Salon writer Will Salazin's argument is the same one made by many. After Presley's comments on student debt, Salatin said that calling it violence was a weak argument, unlikely to persuade many. He says abusing terms like violence doesn't persuade people. It just makes them discount the rest of your message. But the article says the perpetual hysterics of liberals certainly do merit mockery, not the least because even the slightest ridicule exposes the mental fragility and instability of our corrupt regime's defenders. But Salatin and those who agree with him miss the true point of Presley's rhetoric. For regime progressives, nonviolent behaviors by one's enemies aren't labeled violence to persuade, but to enable. Regime progressives don't care about convincing their critics and opponents. They care about overpowering them. Constant shrieks about violence are a call to fellow true believers to remain relentlessly aggressive, to use any tactics available to achieve victory, and to justify or ignore any violence by one's own side as simply a necessary response in the face of violence. 
More than a year ago, during the summer of Floyd, Revolver's Darren Beatty explained the power of the left's moral imperialism and how imperative it is for the right to reject this imperialism if it ever truly wants to govern again. Beatty said, having the moral high ground gives you the confidence to hold frame in a discussion. Not not only are you going to sit back and say it's wrong, but you're going to defend against it with the same kind of conviction that the left uses to destroy everything that is just. Thanks to its dominance of the press, the academy, and the bureaucracy, the left has immense power to shape what's considered right and wrong, and what's considered normal or transgressive. In essence, the constant invocations of violence are a subconscious reminder to left-wing advocates to always maintain a posture of aggression. When you have the power to define reality, then you should define it such that your enemies are always the aggressors, always the ones engaging in violence, even when your most depraved act is one of self-defense. So if calling everything violent works for the left... Does that mean well-meaning Americans should copy that tactic? No. Well-meaning Americans often make the mistake of thinking they win simply by imitating the left. This is how one gets Republican-led criminal justice reform and Mitt Romney marching with BLM. So the article says here, the way to blunt the left's violence rhetoric is simply to stop being controlled by it. Conservatives have to refuse to concede any similarity between the violent, society-destroying behavior of the West and the just functioning of an orderly society. So that means sharply punishing real crimes, where there is a victim, and adhering to laws that really matter. There's a very real connection between throwing rioters in prison and halting the left's efforts to rewrite the dictionary. And when Americans simply point and laugh at the left's rhetoric and do nothing else, they lose. When they point and laugh, but also understand and react, they can win. Interesting take. I don't know. I hope you get something out of it. I thought it was worthwhile just because I love working with words. I always have. And it's it pains me to see things uh, redefined or... Uh, euphemized in ways that it's like that is totally opposite of what this is supposed to mean so now that i've subjected you to the violence of uh, my opinions and these commentaries i want to thank you for being part of our growing audience this is the brian hyde show trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is the Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. This is a place where wrong thinkers can gather, where they can actually contemplate some of the bigger questions in life. I was going to say the no-spin zone, but I think Bill O'Reilly took that one a long time ago. Bottom line is, I'm not here to convince you that I have the right way of seeing things, but I am going to convince you there's a lot of information out there that is incomplete or deliberately slanted to mislead us and to keep us essentially under someone else's thumb. 
I think you and I have heritage as free individuals. I think we need to claim that. And more than that, we need to rise up and fulfill whatever personal destiny is ours. Oh, I know that sounds lofty. I, you know, I, if, if you had said that to me, you know, even 20 years ago, I'd have been, really? But the longer I live, the more I'm convinced. There's a lot of stuff that happens that is just, it's not by accident. I think there's divine purpose in a great deal of it. And I would encourage you, if you feel that call to, to stand, even when it's difficult to stand for truth, I've got your back. And I'm here to supply you with the uh, moral, intellectual, and spiritual ammunition to, to be firm and, and yet to be meek in your stance that you might show other people there's, there's a better way. Let's talk about shaming. You know, it used to be this joke. There was, um, there was a, a joke about, you know, different uh, college extension classes that you could take, you know, to improve your life. Like um, it was a class, what was it? Uh, dishes. Why don't they magically do themselves? It was a class for husbands. I liked this one. It was a parenting class called Molding Your Child's Behavior Through Fear and Self-Doubt. That one made me think about, you know, shame works really well, too. And I think a lot of us grew up with, you know, a little molding through shame. Unfortunately, shame has proven to be a very effective strategy for coercing people in regards to COVID. Got an article here from Tim O'Brien. This is from AmericanThinker.com. And he says, when it comes to social engineering, there's more than one kind of war. We've been witness to the war on drugs, the war on crime, the war on obesity, and most recently, the war on COVID-19. PSYOP strategies are often used in these non-traditional wars, and some of the strategies applied are the same ones used in real warfare scenarios. So from divide and conquer to fear-mongering, Mass persuasion strategies have been deployed in the campaign to make a viral pandemic with an extremely high survival rate and virtually no threat to healthy children feel like the plague. If I can just give you a quick example of what that looks like, KSL, one of the big news stations in Utah, um, had a story today about hospitals are concerned that uh, Omicron, even though it's milder, may soon overwhelm hospitals. And, of course, the picture that they put with this is the obligatory picture of, you know, medical personnel suited up in, you know, the, the complete monkey suit of all the different protective gear as they're standing around soberly, the bedside of someone who's on a ventilator. And the implication here is, oh, my gosh, the cases, <gasps> the cases. Is this what each case looks like? No. It's most likely just a matter of somebody tested positive. I mean, come on, you've got people standing in line for two hours just to be told, Are, am I sick or not? Because they can't tell until they take a case, until they take a test, rather. Then, then it becomes a case. But, yeah, it's, it's uh, sensationalized. It's exaggerated, and I guess I'm one of those weirdos who just wants to know why. Why are you trying to scare us? Now, the pandemic is real, and this article acknowledges this. But quite often, there's a huge gap between the picture the regime paints through its persuasion campaigns and actual reality. One of the foundational strategies that's enabled so many of the other strategies to gain traction is the targeted widespread use of shaming, both public and private. See, shaming exploits basic human vulnerabilities. In order for shaming to work, you need to deputize the public. 
You need to give them license to break all the rules of polite society, even if it involves people they love, to publicly embarrass and shame them into conformity. Shaming applies social pressure to to enforce existing societal norms or the new behaviors the shamers wish to establish as norms. Shaming assigns maliciousness, be it intentional or careless, to behaviors shamers don't condone. By framing them as someone malicious, you can dehumanize them, which makes the shaming more palatable, or makes shaming them more palatable, I should say. See, most people want to obey authority. They want that sense of righteousness. They want to feel that they're on the side of what's right. Shamers know this. It's their superpower. Most people don't want to be called out and stigmatized for being on the wrong side of a social issue or be on the wrong side of the people in their lives. See, that's a vulnerability shamers exploit. The goal of the shamer is to make someone else feel inadequate, to feel bad about themselves and to become more self-conscious. It's designed to sting and create enough discomfort so as to modify the behavior of another person. And as altruistic as the justification for shaming often sounds, shaming doesn't truly prevent viral spread, cure an illness, or change climate conditions. Remember? Climate change denier. See, it's not designed to do that. Shaming is about staking our loyalties on a particular issue. Where are your loyalties? To whom are your loyalties? Are you good or are you bad? We've been told that giving kids peanut butter and jelly in school is lunch shaming. We learned that the simple act of celebrating fit models or actors is fat shaming. Any act you passively carry out in your daily routine can be mischaracterized as the active shaming of those who cannot or choose not to do the same thing in their own lives. Now, if we engage in these behaviors, we are bad, we're told. Think about it. Who's doing the shaming in these instances? But to actively and aggressively demonize and shame your own mother or father or brother or sister in the name of mitigating a pandemic? Why, that's a noble gesture. That's for the good of society. So how are otherwise good people motivated to shame others? Well, they're told in so many words that the end justifies the means. That in order for society to achieve a great goal for the common good, some people must be shamed into obedience and into formation. That way, once everyone has conformed to a set of dictates prescribed by the elites in authority, the problem will be solved. So, how does shaming play out as regards COVID? Well, just wear the damn mask. That was the precursor. See, before vaccination could be wielded like a sledgehammer against anyone with independent thought and a sense of individual rights, mask shaming was the thing. Anyone who doubted the efficacy of wearing masks in such places as the privacy of their own home, their car, or out in the fresh air of sidewalks or on walking trails was told to just wear the damn mask. After all, how hard could it be? It's just a minor inconvenience, and if everyone would just wear a mask for a 100 days, the pandemic would subside. That's what we were told. See, and once a simple message like that takes hold throughout society, the mechanism for shaming is at work. Anyone found not wearing a mask was fair game for shaming. How many smartphone videos did we see on social media where a digital vigilante decided to shame someone for not wearing a mask in a grocery store or some other public place? Here's another example of shaming. A pandemic of the unvaccinated. 
That's the calculatingly inaccurate and cynical message designed to shame anyone who has remained unvaccinated. It's not only designed to bring public shame upon them, but it's designed to plant the seeds of blame and shame within friends and family, in social circles, in business, and work environments. At its core, it's a message intended to appeal to those who've been vaccinated and turn them against people they know personally. It's structured simply so that its messengers have a consistent message to rationalize and justify the shaming of their unvaccinated friends, families, co-workers, and others. Now here's the kicker. Shaming can be a form of abuse, but you can only be shamed if you permit it. There are numerous psychological case studies where abuse victims become so numb to the emotional or physical abuse that the abuse itself no longer has the same effect. In other instances, the general climate uh, is such that the stigmatized behavior becomes so common it starts to enter societal norms and shamers lose their ability to stigmatize their targets. If you need an example of this, watch five minutes of daytime television. From the Mari Povich show to Judge Judy, we see everyday Americans who seem to have no problem airing their dirty laundry for the world to see. These people are shameless. They may not be people you want to have a beer with, but they can teach us something. For most people, you can only be shamed if you allow it. So, keep that in mind when your family or friends or coworkers try to shame you for not being vaccinated, boosted, or not wearing a face mask when the rules allow you not to do so. In the near future, for not taking a COVID test every time you leave your house. See, people are smart, and the constant pounding on them to change their behaviors eventually loses its punch, and they're going to start to realize they can only be shamed if they allow it. So if that sounds familiar, then know that you can decide not to be shamed. You don't need to give people power over you by accepting their shame. That's your choice. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And we are back. Thanks once again for being part of our growing audience of wrong thinkers. I have a dream that someday it's going to be very fashionable to be a wrong thinker. There are times when it's still mildly uncomfortable, but uh, so, so worth it. Hey, this program is brought to you by great sponsors like the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah. If you need a home loan, a reverse mortgage, a VA loan, a traditional loan, whatever it may be, maybe refinance your existing mortgage, you need to talk to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. In fact, this is true for my listeners anywhere in the state of Utah. Count on the experience and the insight of the Heather Turner team and reach out to her at 435-703-4522. I also have an email link in my show notes, or you can stop by her office at 619 South Bluff Street in St. George. Heather's NMLS ID is 715386, and Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. Let's talk about... Higher prices. You probably recognize this. If you've been grocery shopping, um, sticker shock is becoming kind of a normal part of going to the grocery store. I mean, simple stuff. A pack of hot dogs. Really? It's that much? You want some real sticker shock? Go buy a steak. Or at least start the loan paperwork so you can buy one. See, a lot of people see the prices going higher and higher. But very few people understand what inflation is and what causes it. Got a great article here from Stark Realities with Brian McGlinchey. 
It's titled Inflation, a Stealth Tax with No Maximum Rate. Subtitle, The Federal Reserve's Printing Press Enables Reckless D.C. Spending. Now we're all paying the price. Brian McGlinchey says, All across the economic dashboard, inflation indicators are blinking red. Most recently, the Personal Consumption Expenditures Index, or PCE Index, calculated by the Bureau of Economic Analysis, rose 5.7% from November 2020 to November of 2021. That is the biggest year-over-year surge since September 1983. Now, many mistakenly attribute today's rising prices solely to supply chain woes, and government officials are happy to fertilize that mythology. In fact, he has a link to a video clip of Kamala Harris reflexively doing this in this rambling, I didn't do the reading response to a question from Margaret Brennan. She's asked about the inflation crisis, and I mean, it's there's a word salad when she's done, but what it means, well, that's, that's still being debated. The truth is, in the words of economist Milton Friedman, Inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. In other words, today's rising prices are primarily the result of the Federal Reserve's relentless creation of new money, which serves to facilitate the government's multi-trillion dollar deficit spending addiction. Note, the Fed's rampant money creation facilitates deficit spending, but in the end it doesn't actually pay for it. Instead, it functions as a massive scam that hides the price of deficit spending by ultimately passing it on to all of us via inflation. So while the new money effect on prices is compounded by supply chain failures, those failures themselves are driven in part by higher demand fueled by the extra cash in circulation. Now, when the government spends more than it takes in, the difference is funded by issuing treasury bonds, bills, and notes. In a rational, unmanipulated market, a profligate spender that's already more than $29 trillion in debt would have to pay high interest rates to issue a new set of IOUs. Today's 10-year Treasury rate, however, is just 1.5%. And that utterly irrational rate is the direct result of the Federal Reserve's manipulation of the Treasury debt market. So specifically, the Fed routinely buys enormous amounts of Treasury debt artificially pushing the interest rate down in the process. And because it's prohibited from buying Treasury debt directly, the Fed contravenes the spirit of the law by buying it from large investment banks like Goldman Sachs and J.P. Morgan Chase, who profit from their role in what's close to a money laundering scheme. What's most critical to understand, though, is that the Fed buys all those Treasury securities with new money created out of thin air. Unlike in earlier times, U.S. dollars aren't backed by anything at all. Pouring trillions of them into the economy can't create enduring wealth. It can only sap the value of the money that's already in circulation. And he has the charts in this article to help back this up. So if you need some visual backup on this, Brian McGlinchey provides. He says, Fed-created inflation thus functions as a stealth tax. Rather than taking your money directly and openly, the government simply reduces the value of your money through the opaque tax we call inflation. That is a really good explanation, by the way. As Friedman said, inflation is taxation without legislation. Inflation is also taxation without any prescribed maximum rate. More ominously, nobody has any real control over the rate. Once rightly charged with maintaining the value of the dollar, a mission it failed in spectacular fashion, 
the Fed now explicitly seeks to erode its value by 2% a year. However, with inflation accelerating well beyond that pace, it's clear Fed officials appointed to play God with the economy have once again lost control, just as they've done through the cycle of booms and busts that have led us to this point. And keep in mind that inflation tax hits low-income Americans harder. It's a tax that we all pay, but the burden doesn't fall evenly. With inflation assaulting American wallets at the highest pace in nearly four decades, a recently published analysis finds it's taking a toll, a greater toll for that matter, on lower-income Americans. The study by Penn Wharton Budget Model found the average household will have to spend $3,500 more in 2021 to achieve the same level of consumption as in 2020. However, since lower-income households spend more of their budget on goods and services that have been more impacted by inflation, lower-income households will have to spend about 7% more, while higher-income households will have to spend about 6% more. Now, that's not the only way the Fed printing press contributes to wealth inequality. Since there's a lag between money creation and the resulting price inflation, those who get to use the new money first have a leg up. And Wall Street investment banks and major government contractors are among the first in line. How fortunate for them. Also, the Fed's creation of money and artificially low interest rates disproportionately benefits the wealthiest Americans by inflating the value of their invested assets. So Brian McGlinchey says the Fed has painted itself into a corner. With inflation heating up, the Fed and its high-spending D.C. co-conspirators have boxed themselves in. If the Fed stops printing dollars that finance runaway federal spending and force interest rates down, inflation may ease, but the deficit will mushroom even larger due to higher interest rates on Treasury debt. Higher interest rates also affect car and home buyers. Markets will crash and the economy, too. So either the government is going to have to supply the money or the spending is not going to happen. That's according to Peter Schiff, economist and Euro-Pacific Capital CEO, on his podcast. He says, so either we have a recession or we have even worse inflation. Because if the government has to print more money to fund more stimulus spending so that consumers can afford to keep buying stuff at higher prices, well, then we have an even bigger inflation problem on our hands. Though it would cause a major economic disruption, the healthy long-term alternative is for Congress to embrace fiscal responsibility by sharply reducing the scope of the federal government to what's actually prescribed in the Constitution. Slashing a couple trillion dollars from the budget, ending America's sprawling imperial presence abroad, making the dollar real money again, and dramatically reforming, if not eliminating, the Federal Reserve. But don't count on re-election-minded politicians to do any of that anytime soon. Those measures may someday be adopted, but only after a major calamity gives America no alternative. Kind of raises the question, too, for you and me. What kind of things can we do as a hedge against inflation, against debasement of the currency, and so forth? I don't know that I have any solid answers for you. I know there are a lot of great minds out there working on it, and some people may be gold bugs, or, you know, some people may be, I'll get into cryptocurrency. I am thinking more along the lines of uh, tangible assets, something you can actually touch as opposed to electrons in a computer or notations on a ledger. That may be a good way to preserve your wealth. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Just a quick reminder, you can check out a link on my show notes page. This is under my sponsors, governyourincome.com. I don't know if you're one of those people who has reached the point where you're like, I am going to find something to do that will enable me to have the maximum amount of freedom, the maximum amount of control over my own income. Well, this is day trading in the foreign currency exchange or Forex markets. And this is not for everybody. There's a link there if you want to click on it. It explains the system that uh, that is being offered. Look, it requires a pretty significant investment of time, effort, and your own money to get started. But there's someone out there who may have that uh, that thought in mind and thinking, I'm ready to make the change. I would encourage you to take a look at it. They'll walk you through the whole process, train you. They'll even give you company money to trade. And it's something worth thinking about if you are really serious about maintaining your own independence. GovernYourIncome.com Today is January 6th, and I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time talking about this. I've, I've spent more time in the days uh, leading up to this just because I've been warning people there's going to be a lot of melodrama today. The political class is going to be in full victim mode And they're going to be out there wallowing before the TV cameras. Oh, look at us. Look at how important we are and how threatened we all felt a year ago. But the narrative that this was an insurrection is laughably false. And there's uh, there's something you need to know. I wanted to share this with you. So this is this is the sole mention I'm going to make today. And that is the Department of Justice has admitted to secretly sending commandos to the Capitol with shoot-to-kill orders on January 6th. Now, the Gateway Pundit has cited a uh, an exclusive report released by Newsweek on Sunday regarding the secret commandos of the Department of Justice authorized with shoot-to-kill orders. And the outlet that finally raised this matter came out after a year of being accused, along with other media outlets, of being conspiracy nuts on reporting on the feds in the crowd that day. That's been the big question I've had in my mind ever ever since last January 6th is how many of those people in that crowd were federal agents, were agitators or provocateurs? And that's something that uh, the political class is very, very cautious about even, you know, approaching. They don't want anybody thinking that. You know, it was all angry, violent Trump supporters, the deadly insurrection, they call it. And sadly, there are a lot of good people. I have good friends who fall into that, that mindset and sit there and parrot the insurrection, you know, the, w- without even stopping to think about what that really means. But check this out. Newsweek presented what took place days before the U.S. Capitol riot occurred. And Newsweek says a half dozen elite government special operations teams met in Quantico, Virginia, to go over political threats, contingencies, and plans for the upcoming joint session of Congress scheduled for January 6th, 2021. The meeting and subsequent deployment of these shadowy commandos on January 6th has never before been revealed. It was the same joint Congress where legislators would need to decide on certifying the electoral votes on Joe Biden, 
They said joint Congress was the very reason Trump organized the Save America rally in the hope that legislators led by Pence would decertify the electoral votes due to evidence on fraud the former president's team received. Now, accordingly, former acting U.S. Attorney General uh, Jeffrey Rosen approved a long-standing contingency plan immediately after the new year. That plan involved the three worst scenarios that could happen on January 6th. An attack on Trump or former Vice President Mike Pence, a terrorist attack involving a weapon of mass destruction, and a declaration of measures to implement continuity of government requiring protection and movement of presidential successors. Because of these possibilities, Rosen then deployed with the Federal Bureau of Investigation secret DOJ operatives along with national forces to the Capitol. Rosen admitted this matter in a written testimony dated May 12, 2021, for the hearing held by the United States House of Representatives Committee on Oversight and Reform. Quote, I believe that DOG, re, DOJ reasonably prepared for contingencies ahead of January 6th, understanding that there was considerable uncertainty as to how many people would arrive, who those people would be, and precisely what purposes they would pursue. Unlike the police, DOJ had no frontline role with respect to crowd control. The FBI, ATF, DEA, and U.S. Attorney's offices, as investigative and prosecuting agencies, are generally not equipped for crowd control. But DOJ took appropriate precautions to have tactical support available if contingencies led to them being called upon. Rosen said. Prior to this statement, Rosen identified the agencies he worked with to ensure that order was maintained in the Capitol on that fateful day. Quote, I am proud, also proud of the efforts of DOJ, which urgently deployed more than 500 agents and officers of the Federal Bureau of Investigation, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms, and the U.S. Marshals Service to assist in restoring order at the Capitol. These outstanding men and women moved with urgency to assist the Capitol Police and others in the midst of an unprecedented security breach and help to clear and secure the hallowed epicenter of representative government. End quote. Now, here's the thing. Newsweek highlighted that all these were pre-deployed and were transportable to the site through helicopter. The outlet noted that the role of the military, which the FBI did admit, existed that day as part of a national mission force. But the media outlet surmised that Rosen's testimony missed out on a very important matter, which was also overlooked by the other agencies and remains a mystery. The media outlet said the presence of these extraordinary forces under the control of the attorney general and mostly operating under contingency plans that Congress and the U.S. Capitol Police were not privy to added an additional layer of highly armed responders. So here's the question that has to be answered now. What was it that the Justice Department saw that provoked it to see January 6th as an extraordinary event, something that the other agencies evidently missed? Let me, uh, let me back this up with a little personal experience. That tells you that will explain to you why I'm so skeptical about the official version. Why would they have all of these uh, these people on standby? This put this takes me back to about uh, what was it four years ago? 
Four years ago, I was spending a lot of time in and out of a federal courtroom in Las Vegas, Nevada, as the Bundy family, specifically um, Ryan Bundy, Ammon Bundy, Cliven Bundy, and Ryan Payne were being tried for their parts in the uh, uh, April 2014 standoff at, at Bundy Ranch down in Bunkerville. Among the things which undid the prosecution's case against the Bundys was the revelation that they had suppressed evidence which could have been considered exculpatory. This was a Brady violation. They suppressed evidence of just how deeply the feds were involved before that standoff ever took place. And among the things we learned sitting in that courtroom were that uh, the FBI hostage rescue team among others. They had like an anti-terrorism task force. They had members of LAPD SWAT. They're in Bunkerville training BLM agents and rangers in basic infantry tactics and small unit tactics. They had snipers surrounding the Bundy's home. They had surveillance cameras. They The, the family members talked about laser, laser dots being shown on their kids as they were out playing in the yard. All of that was dismissed as conspiracy. Well, it's just some fantastical fishing expedition, you know. Uh, Stephen Myrie, who was the head prosecutor, said hey, they, they downplayed that as it was just fantasy. But the bottom line is, the feds went in there loaded for bear, fully expecting a confrontation when the FBI, which had done threat assessments on the Bundy family, uh, I believe at least three different times, and each of those threat assessments came back with, these people are not dangerous. At worst, you get them backed into a corner, you might get punched in the nose. But nowhere was there a threat that, oh man, they're, they're like going to take up arms and they're going to make what ISIS does look calm by comparison. Why were there so many militarized assets? Why did they send a 200-man armed-to-the-teeth task force to take away this rancher's cows because he wouldn't play nice with a bunch of bureaucrats? See, it's stuff like that that makes me think that uh, something very fishy was going on in Washington, D.C. And this looks like more evidence that uh, the players who were involved had a good idea that something was going on, probably because it was their assets or their people that were going to be a key part of those activities. Now, again, there's a lot of things here that, that we don't know. But this is one more piece of the puzzle which casts serious doubt that, oh, yeah, Trump just organized his people into some big riotous mob and they went in there and they conducted a deadly insurrection. Check yourself if you're tempted to say that because... That narrative doesn't hold water. Not anymore. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And we are back. So, you know, I have these moments of uh, great hope, and uh, I, I feel really reassured sometimes. So when I look around, it looks like, oh, you know what? I think people are actually starting to wake up, which I, I have hoped for for a long time. I've worked towards doing my part to try to help people wake up. And then, you know, every so often I swing back into this sense of despair, like, oh, no, no, no. Everybody's still pretty much asleep. But 
Lately, I have felt like the public is is snapping out of its uh, trance in response to COVID. The hypnosis, the fear is starting to wear off. People are just getting back to living their lives. I mean, how many people do you know who seriously look to, well, I better see what Dr. Fauci says before I, you know, go see family at Christmas or celebrate New Year's with a family member? Most people I know are just like, we'll take the chance. We understand there may be some risk involved. Maybe our family Christmas get-together is going to be a super spreader event, but not likely. So I feel good on the one hand, like, you know, people are starting to wake up. The narrative is starting to fall apart. But I guess because they're, they're losing their grasp on the COVID narrative, it makes sense that the power seekers and the opportunists would be waiting with another existential threat to trot out and keep us in line. John Miltimore, writing for the Foundation for Economic Education, has a great explanation how some are advocating that authoritarianism may be necessary to fight climate change. This is according to a Cambridge study. And John's take is, hey, there may be many genuine threats facing humanity, but none of them require authoritarianism or the infringement of civil liberties. And I guess if there's one thing we can be grateful for, at least they're calling it what it is. So, you know, let's be happy for, for, for small things. John Miltimore says a recent study published in American Political Science Review, that's a quarterly peer-reviewed academic journal published by Cambridge University, begins with a teasing question. Is authoritarian power ever legitimate? Now, for many, the answer is clearly no, concedes the study's author, Ross Mitiga, an assistant to professor of political theory at Pontifical Catholic, Chile, Catholic, Catholic University of Chile. But Matiga, in the abstract of the study, suggests otherwise, quote, While under normal conditions, maintaining democracy and rights is typically compatible with guaranteeing safety, in emergency situations, conflicts between these two aspects of legitimacy can and often do arise. A salient example of this is the COVID-19 pandemic, during which severe limitations on free movement and association have become legitimate techniques of government. Barf. Sorry. Climate change poses an even graver threat to public safety. Consequently, I argue, legitimacy may require a similarly authoritarian approach. Really? John Miltimore says the study caught the eye of Alexander Wutke, a Twitter user who studies political behavior at the University of Mannheim in Germany. Wutke tweeted, in my reading, it explicitly argues we must put climate action over democracy and adopt authoritarian governance if democracies fail to act on climate change. In an extensive thread, Wutke explained why he disagrees with Matiga. I'm genuinely puzzled about the origins of this anti-democratic intuition that seems to give rise to the entire endeavor of exploring whether we should sacrifice democracy for the sake of a higher good. Woodkey says the article argues that crises not only can legitimize but may require authoritarian governance. This is not true. Democracies have fought the pandemic without giving up being democratic. End, end quote. Now, there's another Twitter, another tweet of his. As a prestigious journal in political science has published a disturbing piece of political theory, he says, in my reading, it explicitly argues we must put climate action over democracy and adopt authoritarian governments if democracies fail to act on climate change. 
Now, John Miltimore says in a rare and refreshing display of civility for Twitter, Mitiga says he appreciated Woodkey's thoughts and thanked him for his goodwill in sharing these comments with me before posting. In his own thread, Matiga sought to address what he said were several mischaracterizations or confusions in Woodkey's comments. The relevant question is not whether giving up democracy was somehow necessary for addressing the emergency, in this case COVID-19. Clearly it was not, and I certainly never suggest as much in the paper, Matiga argues at one point. Rather, the real question, the one that gets at what I tried to argue, is whether democracies have addressed the emergency in purely democratic, rights-respecting ways. And the answer is, of course, they have not. So John Miltimore asks, less legitimate nations shun authoritarianism? He says, for those interested in capturing the nuance of the differences in what Matiga says he meant in the study versus what Woodkey believes he wrote, Miltimore says, I suggest a careful review of their threads and the study itself all of which are linked in his article. However, Matiga's own description speaks for itself. He says that COVID-19 clearly resulted in severe restrictions on rights of free movement, association, religious practice, even speech, all of which are authoritarian in nature, though I would argue they've often been nonetheless legitimate. Yeah, that pretty much sounds like he's on board with it. Matiga then explains that governments that fail to take authoritarian steps to mitigate the threat of COVID are perceived as less legitimate. Think here of the Trump or Bolsonaro governments. Now, Matiga says, I believe the same is true with respect to climate change. Those governments which are able but unwilling to confront the climate crisis, which poses one of the greatest threats to safety and security we have ever faced, are for that reason less legitimate. John Miltimore says, look, whatever nuances Woodkey may have missed in Matiga's study, it's clear that Matiga is in fact arguing that legitimate governments should shun democratic principles and civil liberties and embrace authoritarianism to confront the challenges like climate change. So say what you will about Matiga's proposal, which is myopic and dangerous. His logic is sound. If legitimate governments embrace authoritarian measures to combat a deadly pandemic that poses a genuine threat to humans, why shouldn't they embrace authoritarian measures to combat climate change, which many argue poses an even greater threat? He says there's a popular meme among libertarians. If you allow politicians to break the law during emergencies, they will create an emergency to break the law. Now, it's a cynical take to be sure, but... It contains more than a nugget of truth. Progressives have long been frustrated by the American system, which was designed to disperse centralized power, something they feared above all else. James Madison, writing in the Federalist Papers, said, The accumulation of all powers, legislative, executive, and judiciary in the same hands, whether of one, a few, or many, and whether hereditary, self-appointed, or elective, may justly be pronounced the very definition of tyranny. For this reason, the founders created a federalist, meaning decentralized system, with numerous checks and balances. That system endured stubbornly for generations, but over the course of the 20th century, the checks and balances eroded, not so much slowly as sporadically. In his book, Crisis and Leviathan, economist Robert Higgs points out that there's a pattern to the erosion of constitutional limits on power. They happen during crises. In 2020, the crisis crisis was the pandemic. 
which precipitated lockdowns and the most widespread infringements on economic freedom in U.S. history. Now, Mittig is not wrong when he asserts that the pandemic resulted in authoritarian restrictions on rights of free movement, association, religious practice, even speech. But he may not realize this is part of a pattern. As Higgs shows, the erosion of civil liberties and the biggest power grabs in history came during periods of crisis. World War I brought the draft, crackdowns on disloyal speech, unprecedented government propaganda, the chilling Palmer raids, and much more. The Great Depression gave birth to the New Deal. World War II, again, brought back the draft, Japanese internment camps, and more. Korea brought on the nationalization of steel mills. The 9-11 attacks spawned the War on Terror and the Patriot Act. And these are hardly the only, only examples. What's important is that the crises have historically served as the catalyst for authoritarianism. As Higgs notes, the emergency powers often persist long after the emergency has abated. Higgs refers to this phenomenon as the ratchet effect, which suggests that governments simply lack the will or ability to roll back bureaucratic power strengthened for supposedly temporary needs, giving credence to James Madison's prophetic warning that a free people would be wise to guard against the old trick of turning every contingency into a resource for accumulating force in government. See, a brief reading of history shows there will always be a crisis, a conflict, or a catastrophe around the corner that those in power will use to violate the very, they'll use as a pretext to violate the very liberties governments are supposed to protect. And if there's not a crisis, well, then you can bet that they will find one. I guess what this means is your skepticism is well-placed. Don't ever lose that. This is The Brian Hyde Show.